Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 171 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in another summer heat wave in St. Louis. (laughs) And I'm Tom Mile in more of the same in Dallas. In our last episode, we considered a clean and fresh approach to email and explored the idea of good email hygiene. In this episode, we make our return to the planet of the apps and focus on recent developments and trends in mobile apps. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we're going to be discussing some new developments in the world of apps, uh, how these developments might affect lawyers and whether anybody cares about it. In our second segment, we'll join in the speculation about Microsoft's recent acquisition of LinkedIn. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first, let's talk about what's new in the world of apps. Over the past few weeks, uh, we've seen some interesting news come up about what I and what people call the app economy. First up was Apple's announcement that they're going to move to a subscription model for apps, if not all of them, at least most of them in the App Store. And then comes news that uh, that the app bubble has burst, that the app boom is over, that we only use a couple of apps and we're not downloading any apps. And you know that always tends to lead to the inevitable discussion about whether something's dead or not. Dennis, do these stories lead you to believe that apps are dead again? Um, Actually, they don't. So I have this new theory that when people are saying that something is dead, especially technology, in a lot of cases, they say that just about the time things are really starting to be interesting. And I sort of think that's the case with apps for a number of reasons. And I think some of this news is, especially that people don't use that many apps, is pretty much common sense and it's predictable. I mean, so when we first started with apps, I mean, you and I used to joke. I mean, you you were writing a book about apps, so at least you had an excuse. But we had hundreds of apps. And the fact is that there's no way that you can use all those things. And the idea is you sample apps and you you come down to the ones that really help you. And so I think, you know, by its nature, that's going to be a handful or maybe two handfuls of apps that you use on a regular basis. And then some specialty apps that you might use when you're you're traveling and such. So so those those numbers and the lack of downloads don't surprise me. I think that you know, the watch apps and other things may change that as people start to experiment in different ways. But I think it's a, a maturing of the market. The subscription thing is actually uh, pretty interesting because, uh, Tom, I know you like to say to me that I'm the king of free apps and I n- never want to pay for an app. But the fact is I have bought some apps and I bought some expensive apps like OmniFocus because it fits exactly what I want. And in some ways, you know, what Apple's doing on the subscription model is saying to people, hey, as you keep improving this app over time, the way the, the ecosystem is set up now, you can't you can't make any more off of that app from people updating it. You know, the apps just update for free. And so to me, it's sort of attractive if I don't have to pay as much to start with. And then there's an easy way for me to subscribe and I just get 
to me, it needs to be automatic. But like a, another, you know, like four ninety five or a year or ten dollars a year or something for apps that I really like, that makes sense. And I would prefer that uh, at least as an option to you know to having an app being funded through ads in it. Right, and I, I don't disagree. So let's kind of break this down a little bit. You know, previously subscriptions were just used for apps that would stream media to you or, or would send regular information. You know, magazines, music, video. To me, it makes sense to pay a regular subscription to Spotify. Uh, instead of buying my music online, I no longer buy music from iTunes or go and buy CDs anywhere. I rent it from Spotify. I decided I would rather pay them $9.95 a month to rent that music and to listen to anything I wanted to than to buy more music. And I'm comfortable with that for a monthly fee. But but I guess what if my RSS reader all of a sudden started to charge me a monthly fee to read my news? Or what if TweetBot, which is, in my opinion, the, the, the superior Twitter client for the iPad and iPhone, started charging me a monthly fee to get my tweets? I, I, I don't really have a problem with that in theory. I think what I worry about mostly is the fact that the potential for all of this to add up. So you're right, you may have a handful or a couple of handfuls of apps that you tend to use, but I'm curious to know how this will work. For example, will there be some sort of trial period where you can try it out before paying a subscription, or do you have to start paying the subscription immediately? Do you then need to pay attention to what's on your device all the time? And if you're not using it, delete it before you get charged again? I mean, right now I have, I'd say I probably have close to 150 apps on my phone right now, but I would say that the vast majority of them are for what I would call, you know, single use cases, specific use cases that I very rarely get to, but when I need it, that's the app, and I love having it on there. It's the you never know when I might need it kind of app. But if I'm going to get charged a subscription for having all of those on my phone, then that becomes more than you know ten dollars times 150 apps winds up being a whole lot of money to pay each year. So I'm more curious to know exactly how this is going to work out. Yeah. So I, I think in a way we revert to the software models, and so I, I think you're right. There's a trial notion. There's a shareware notion where you say well, I would like to try this app. And if it's something I like, can do it by a subscription, that makes sense to me. I don't know that I want to pay a subscription right away. And I don't know whether I want to, as you say, pay you know, $5 a month, $10 a month, uh, you know, $2 a month for 100 apps just to use them. So the models have to be worked out. And so, so I think there's, there's a couple things. So the models need to be worked out. I like the fact that subscriptions, you know, give an incentive for people to update their apps and not do that extra work on updating them for free. I think that's a plus. I think that, you know, built into the idea of subscriptions is, and, and obviously this comes from my perspective of working at MasterCard, is that you got to make the payment easy to do, you know, because I don't want that to be a hassle you know, to pay the subscription within the app. And so I think it's a way of doing things. So I, I don't know that in every case I want to subscribe, but I, I definitely think I want to trial. And if it's a good app, I think that shareware notion of saying, hey, uh, one way I can compensate the people who've, who put together this great app is to, to pay a subscription. That's great. You know, if they want to do a tip jar, they want to do, you know, some other way that 
that I can pay them that's not a subscription, that's also fine. I just am not crazy about, in most cases, saying that an ad model is the way that they're going to make money. Right. I mean, I think I think Apple's position is right when they say that for this to work, the app experience, I think what the quote was, was the app experience must provide ongoing value worth the recurring payment. And I can tell you already, I'm doing that for uh, on my computer with a number of different things. I'm, I'm now willingly paying a monthly subscription to Microsoft Office for Office 365. I'm willingly paying a monthly subscription for my Adobe Acrobat uh, because for me, it's worth the recurring payment to have that quality tool on my computer and being able to install it wherever I happen to be. And I think that the reason why this is possible now is that in contrast, to the past, the developers are able to constantly iterate their apps so they can push out new updates. I think we definitely benefit from that, but I, I also want to avoid the situation where um, a, an app developer is receiving you know, monthly or yearly subscriptions from people who do it, and yet they still don't roll out any updates. I, I think the market will correct for that. I think that if people find that they're not getting the benefit of newly updated apps, they're going to quit the subscription. And I think that the developer will be incentivized to regularly update it. But I think that's a danger too, is that is that you've got to rely on that relationship between the, the customer and the developer to be a successful model for that. Um, you know, I guess I'm okay with this happening. It doesn't particularly bother me because I already have subscriptions. I still think that I'm waiting to see more details about how this is going to work. But I think one of the more interesting, the other interesting story that came out um, has to do, is, is to me, somewhat related. And it, it, it's the story or the idea that uh, the app boom is over. And they, they, they quote a story from Comscore, a survey from Comscore that says that 65% of smartphone users download exactly zero apps per month. That people just aren't going out and downloading things the way that they used to be. And, and the rest, you know, the other third are maybe downloading only an app or two per month. And I guess I'm curious, assuming that those are correct, assuming that the, that the survey is right, any ideas why that might be happening? Yeah, I mean, I have one big idea, and that's mobile-first web design. So if I can go to mobile-optimized web pages, then a lot of things that people might use an app for you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, OpenTable, you know, Yelp, all these different things. If there are great mobile websites, then it could be an unsophisticated user, but somebody who doesn't use apps, that experience on the web is going to be just fine. Then they have to figure out, you know, how do I do apps? Do I have to go to the app store? How do I pay? What's my password for iTunes or for app store? All those sorts of things. So it becomes a hassle. But if my experience on the web doing those things is just fine, then the app becomes less interesting to me. So I, I think in some ways time we're, we're sort of exceptions where we say, no, there are apps that we really use and we like the experience of certain apps better. And there are apps that we use for productivity and, and other things. So I, I, I think that does make a difference. Uh, I suspect that the use of apps is down because at the beginning, you know, people just downloaded tons of apps and then they realized that they had screens full of apps. People who have not a lot of memory on their phone, you know, and who take a lot of pictures realize that 
they use up all that memory on the phone and so they start deleting apps and i don't think there's like the killer apps you know angry birds and those things that the people absolutely had to have i can see where it would start to go down for for any number of reasons and then you know we're in it, among lawyers i just i think lawyers tend to think when i have conversations with them about it that they're looking for legal specific apps and they don't really consider the possibilities of of the regular apps so i don't think that the lawyers as a group are a, a heavy group of app users anyway so i think all of those factors to me would say if you're looking at, at the big numbers and dropping down, I, I see plenty of reasons for it. Well, I think, I don't know if I'm disagreeing with you or disagreeing with your idea that that mobile-first web design is responsible for it, only because I think you said it. My opinion is, is that um, I have yet to come across a mobile-first web design of a site or a service that is better than an app that's on the phone in terms of pure functionality and the ability to get things done. So I'll be skeptical if that's a reason. The research that I've seen really seems to indicate that people just don't need that many apps. There was one study that found that 42% of all time spent on a smartphone is with just one app, the app they use most. Um, and that's almost half the time. Those of you who are living in the world of iPhone don't get this benefit, but there are some apps and some services for Android phones where um, they will actually help you organize your screen by surfacing up to the top the apps that you wind up using most often. And those icons go to the place where you're most likely to get to them. And um, I'll tell you that when I use those services, I am shocked at the number of apps that are up there. I'm using maybe five, maybe seven or eight apps frequently, and everything else is very, very little time. And so I, I think that has something to do with it, is that, I, and when I, nowadays when I see these new, um, when I see uh, stories about new apps, it's very rare that there are new apps that are out there that I think are very interesting. And it, and it almost seems like um, the innovation for apps has, I won't say it's gone away because there's still some great apps that are coming out, but I would say that it has lessened. It seems like it is not as as significant as it was in the past. And as for lawyers, as you mentioned, I mean, the, the ABA's Legal Technology Resource Center survey found that uh, you know a very small percentage of lawyers have even ever downloaded a legal app to their phone or to their tablet. I mean, they just don't find the need to use legal apps on there. And I, I think that that's a pointing to the fact that uh, that most people, and lawyers included, view a smartphone as a communication device. And they're going to use it for the same thing that everybody else uses it for, taking pictures, sending text messages, and <laughs> watching their social media feeds. I'm just going to go really you know, back to, to simple things on this. So what I find is that... There's two things that happen here. When you have a lot of apps, you realize how hard it is to move apps around and to get them organized in a way that you want. And that is very important. Tom and I, you were talking earlier today on a webinar we did. When we first started using Slack, we would use Slack and then we would email each other to say, why haven't you responded to what I did, what I sent you in Slack? And for me, it took moving it to the home screen of my iPhone for Slack to become really useful to me because then I saw the notifications. But 
Slack was several screens back in there, and you got to do the thing where the, your apps are jiggling, and then move them to the edge, and you know, move between screens. And so, when you have a lot of apps, it's just it's just really difficult to organize. And a lot of people don't know how to do that. And even if you do, it's it's cumbersome. And then the other thing is, I just run into a lot of people who are out of storage on their phones because they, you know, save money by going with the 16 gigabyte iPhone or whatever, and they take a lot of pictures. And so they run out of space. And the one thing that you can show them that they can do and they then they learn how to do is that you delete apps that you don't use. And so that means that people tend not to add new apps once they feel that their storage challenged on a phone. And, and I think those are are two big things. And then I think the third thing that we can go into is that I think that a lot of people don't realize how good a lot of the apps have become. And right. so and so it's been a while. And so they've, they're used to apps from a few years ago being really primitive. And some of the apps are excellent. I know that you and many other people just rave about the Microsoft Outlook app for email. And I don't, I don't think a lot of people would even think to download that app. No, I agree. I think that, that a lot of the apps out there have gotten to be really good and they're you know slowly getting to be really good and, and, and it's maybe taking people by surprise. I don't want this to become a, an episode about uh, iOS versus Android, but the comments that you made are interesting to me in that, at least to some extent, Google is addressing some of those issues with regard to its Android phone. So for example, you had Slack buried in a bunch of screens. Um, Android, by contrast, contrast has what they call an app drawer. And I can get to all my apps and they're alphabetically arranged and I can see them, I can get to them very simply if I need to get to all my apps. But I actually only have about you know 15 or 20 apps on my home screen and that's it. I just have one home screen. I don't have any other screens that I have to go to and Android makes that possible. It's something that you can't do on an iPhone, at least not yet. And I find that that is real helpful. When I want Slack or any other app to notify me that you've sent me a message, I enable the notifications to show up in my notifications drawer so I don't have to go digging through to find the app to get the notification. So there's ways around it, uh, at least in the Android world. And then the other thing that's interesting is that Android is getting ready to roll out a new feature, which I hope iOS will do as well, that, for example, let's say that you get an email or you're on a web page and the web page, um, you're reading about a restaurant and that restaurant's really nice and it says click here to make a reservation at that restaurant on OpenTable, but you don't have the OpenTable app installed on your phone, uh, either you don't want it or you you're, you don't have enough space for it, new versions of Android are going to allow you to click that link and it's going to temporarily install it on your phone for the purpose of conducting that transaction and doing whatever you need to do. And then it will offload itself immediately. It doesn't actually install itself on the phone. It's just sort of a preload so that you can read a story or get something done and then it goes away. And I really like that idea of the ability to, to have have apps on your phone temporarily so that you don't have to worry about downloading all these apps and having them for that just-in-time uh, occasions when you need them. And I really think that's kind of maybe the way that app use is going to start going, that instead of having 200 apps on our phone, we might have many fewer apps, but we temporarily download them when we do need them. 
Yeah, it's sort of an on-demand notion of That's apps, right. which yep. is why, you know, I, my comment of saying, I, I think that maybe apps are really starting to get interesting to me. And, and that's one example. I think the more features that are going into apps of, you know, where you can message, you know, where you can make payments, where you can, you know, scan, you can do other things that uh, will go into those apps, makes those apps more useful in a lot of ways because you can you can do more things. We did the podcast time on the sort of invisible things, but I think that you know messaging that goes into an app and it's sort of seamless and you're you're not aware of what's powering it, but it just it just works inside the app is a cool thing. I think when I was traveling recently, comparing the experience, although you know I, I started out of course by saying the mobile first thing is a big help, but the app experience versus the mobile web thing when you're used to the app. I think the app a lot of times is a much better experience, a less cluttered experience and a more functional experience. So that's good. And then the thing I really started to like, and, I, and there's a term for it that uh, escapes me right now, Tom, you might remember, but it's the sort of notion to say, once I'm in an app, I have a number of choices I can now do. And so on a lot of apps, there will be, and, and this is sort of the iPhone, uh, I'm sure there's an Android uh, version of this as, as well, Tom, but I I can say, oh, I can I can make this into a PDF, I can send it to Evernote, I can send it to a calendar. Uh, if I find a, a web page, I can convert it to a PDF and put it into iBooks so I can read it later. Um, I can tweet it, I can, you know, I can email it to somebody. So you have these sort of functionality that gets you out of the app to actually do something. And I, I think that's a big development to me that's made the use of apps uh, really great for me over the, the last few months, just the addition of those sort of common features. Yeah, I think that the ability, I call that feature the share sheet. It's a different share button in iOS than it is in Android, but it uh, for every app, there should be that, how do I get stuff out of here? Or how do I save something or do something with what's in here? Because I, I, you know, what I used to talk about with the iPad is, is that the information that you have in any one individual app is only as useful as you can get it out of there if you need to use it or send it to other people. And I think that you're right. The apps are starting to take a lot more advantage of that and it's just simple dead simple now to really just send stuff in a text message or I will tell you that the Android share sheet is crazy complicated because I literally can send or do something with almost every app on my phone if I want to send a text message or if I have I copy some information I can copy it to almost any app on my phone and it's really amazing how how interesting those apps are getting so I, I agree with you I think that in one way apps are starting to get interesting I think in another way, the craze of, you know, developing apps and of, you know, everybody finding the latest app, I think that has diminished somewhat, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, so just kind of wrap some ideas up for the segment. Tom, I, it looks like it was May 31st, the uh, Legal Technology Resource, Law Technology Today blog had a roundtable on the best apps for productivity, which is kind of an interesting article of what people actually use and it's a number of lawyers some great questions and answers so recommend that put that in the show notes and i i've found that uh there's certain apps that are indispensable to me i love the fact that with one password on my iphone like when I'm checking into a hotel and need a number or, you know, anything like that uh, where I actually have to, you know, find 
passwords, uh, and I know, Tom, you and I use password managers in different ways, but those apps become extremely valuable to you. And then Overcast that I use for listening to podcasts is like worlds better, just worlds better on the app as opposed to going to the website for that. So I think there's a lot going on in the world of apps. And I think people who might have backed away and for a while and don't want to install apps might, I think it's going to be worth their while to take another close look at some of the apps uh, again, because I think there's been a huge improvement over the last year or two. I think so, too. I think we'll need to uh, maybe revisit this topic when Apple rolls out its App Store 2.0 and we see what the subscription model really looks like. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. The big tech news lately has been Microsoft's recently announced acquisition of LinkedIn. I've now had time to move past my initial reaction, which was, of course, what does this mean for a new edition of Allison Shields' nice book, LinkedIn One Hour for Lawyers? I've seen a lot of speculation on the impact on lawyers, interestingly, and some of it is, is actually quite wild. So uh, we thought we'd jump in with some speculation of our own. Tom, uh, what do you think this acquisition might mean for lawyers who are heavy users of LinkedIn? Well, you know, it's funny because although I know that some lawyers are heavy users of LinkedIn, my initial my initial thought when I saw the news, because there's a lot of people with strong opinions on both companies, my initial thought was, oh, one boring company bought another boring company. And maybe the way to put it is that neither LinkedIn nor Microsoft are considered to be very cool in the tech world. They're very solid companies, but they're not uh, hip, I think. But they're both incredibly successful companies. And, and I think that in some ways, Microsoft's purchase of LinkedIn makes total sense. And I think that um, for lawyers, I kind of want you to talk about the social aspect of it. I'm thinking about the functional practical aspect of it because now there are so many different ways that LinkedIn can integrate with Microsoft. Um, all the information that's in a LinkedIn profile can now has the ability to flow directly into your Outlook contacts. It flows into Skype. That information is now going to be part of Cortana, so you can ask Cortana a question about a person, and you can get that information. And all the other products that Microsoft has, there's opportunities there. LinkedIn, a while back, I think it was maybe last year, bought lynda.com, the training site that both you and I, Dennis, have talked about on the podcast before that we really like as a training service. And, and now they can integrate those learning tools into Office and they can, I mean, I would say that many of the tools that are on lynda.com are about Microsoft Office tools. What this, I think, really represents is that it's an extension of the fact that Microsoft has pivoted to become a service that is selling online services to business customers, Office 365 being primary. But but so many other services they're selling to business customers. And I really think that LinkedIn fits that model perfectly. What do you think, Dennis? So 
right before this was announced, I was cleaning up my contacts. And so I have contacts in Gmail, I have contacts in Outlook, and I just felt they had become really outdated. And I wanted to clean them up and combine them. And while I was doing it, I said, you know, I wish that LinkedIn would have moved a lot further on their plan <laughs> to become the central repository for your contacts, because then I wouldn't have to update the stuff and have these outdated information, because if it was all in LinkedIn, then when somebody changes a job or whatever, I have that information, and it makes it really easy to have one set of, of contacts, because, you know, I clean these things up, and then I upload them to LinkedIn and see who I need to add to LinkedIn, who I haven't gotten before. Before. So my initial reaction is like, great, because this, you know, gets me to where I wanted to go, which is like the self-updating contact list. So I ran into a friend of mine from Microsoft and I asked him about it and I said, you know, I to me, this is about customer relationship management and this, you know, the, the contact thing and being able to have updating contacts. And he was like, bingo, you know, but I think you're right, as you say it, that Microsoft does a lot. And I think you appreciate it more and more if you're in a large business. But the value of having this information at your fingertips when you're talking to somebody and you can get that biographical information you get from LinkedIn, that you can see connections, all those sorts of things. I just see this with having a lot of potential. I don't see it as a way, as some people do say, oh my God, this is gonna, you know, now Microsoft is gonna figure out what you're working on as you're writing a brief and they're gonna, you know, let people know about it or you're gonna get these advertisements served at you. I don't, I don't really think that makes sense. It's kind of a, it seems like a great science fiction plot, but I don't see how that actually works. So I think it's interesting. I'm also interested to see, because some people say this, Microsoft is gonna approach this like, Google does what we are calling Google, but uh, I think with the alphabet model where there's a, you know, LinkedIn is just one division that sort of runs itself. So they won't see a lot of change in how they do things. They will just look at the ways that the two services uh, can be combined. But I, just that idea of, like I said, the self-updating uh, context is an exciting thing for me. And, you know, all I know is that uh, I have no idea whether the next edition of our book will be <laughs> LinkedIn or will be Microsoft or it will be some other name. Now it's time for our parting shots. That one tip website or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. Well, I'm going to stay in the Microsoft world for my um, parting shot and talk to you about Microsoft Planner. Those of you who have tried to use Microsoft Project in the past may have felt that it was very complicated, very hard to use. It's a very powerful program for project management, but it is, uh, it's got a lot of features and it's hard to learn. Uh, if you are an Office 365 subscriber, if you do not already have it, you will soon have access to Microsoft Planner, which is a more lightweight project management tool and it's a way for you to create project plans to organize and assign and collaborate on tasks to set due dates to to update statuses and share files and you've got a visual dashboard to kind of see uh, what's going on and, and you can see the, the progress it's not going to burn the, the 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 halls down in terms of the being the best project management tool ever but uh, but I think from a company that that has gotten one tool right in terms of power uh, uh, having something that's a little more lightweight, a little easier to use, um, certainly is worth a look. So Microsoft Planner, it should be part of your Office 365 subscription soon if it isn't already. 
So my parting shot is uh, we've talked a lot about Kevin Kelly and uh, who's behind the Cool Tools site that we we mentioned quite a bit on this podcast. But he has a new book called The Inevitable, uh, which examines, I think it's 12 trends in technology, sort of the big picture trends. And so there are things like tracking and how we're using AI and things are getting smarter and, and a number of things like that. And so he's trying to look at those trends and say, these trends, when you step back are really going to happen and they're inevitable in a way. And so he uses the example that, that uh, of what he means by inevitable is that once the telephone was invented, the fact that we would be communicating by phones was inevitable. The fact that at one point it would become the iPhone is not something you could predict, but you can sort of tell where things are going. The internet being the same way, that sort of thing. Tracking, once we start tracking, we know that once we're able to track anything, we're going to be tracking everything. And so what we need to think about as a society and as individuals is in response to those technology trends which are going to happen, what does that mean? How do we react to it? Um, how do we control that? What decisions do we make? What policies might we want to put in as we react to those? So very good book, you know, obviously thought-provoking, but even better for those of you who don't have time to read is that Kevin has done a lot of podcasts recently, and he's just a great guest on podcasts, and he really goes through the ideas in the book in a way that's very easy to understand. So I recommend both the book and tracking down uh, the podcast that he's done recently talking about the book. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast, I am Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.